This week's element, sunflower. That's right, sunflower. The essential element we explored this week, the necessary ingredient for art making, is the sunflower. One of our guests, David Zolnit, the North American arts organizer for 350.org, who's working on art projects for the People's Climate March in DC, will explain toward the end of this episode how that makes our work come full circle. I'm Keith Palmadellas. This month on Elemental, we've focused entirely on arts and climate justice. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to episode 7, The Divine, you want to back up a bit and have a listen to me having my tarot cards read. James Leonard asks all participants in his mobile tent of casually observed phonologies to reflect on their relationship with the topic and then seeks answers in the divine. But this week, we have some good stuff in store. In the first part of the episode, we're joined by my guest co-host, Lanny Fu, one of the directors of Superhero Clubhouse, a theater company here in New York City, addressing issues of climate justice through theater making. With a series of planet plays, the company has explored everything from how we obtain power on a coal-powered electric grid to mass extinction. Additionally, annually, the company produces the Big Green Theater Festival with elementary school students who learn about ecological conditions and then write plays. They're produced by professional actors for the festival, honoring every word of these young people. We start with our own conversation. My own company, the Upstream Artist Collective, is similarly eco-theater-minded, which starts our chatting. Following... Lanny joins me for an interview with arts organizers at 350.org who are working to coordinate the People's Climate March in D.C. this coming weekend. We'll be there with our recorder, and we'll release a follow-up episode to share the experience. First, Lanny. Do you want to tell us about Superior Clubhouse? Yeah, sure. So, um... We're a collective of artists and scientists based in New York City. Um, we make what we call eco-theater, which um, kind of encompasses a whole range of different kinds of work, um, which spans you know, uh, community and education programs, also uh, the creation of original work, and um, a laboratory for collaboration between the arts and sciences, um, yeah, so we kind of do a whole range, and all of that falls under the umbrella of what we call eco-theater, and we kind of take um, a process that we describe as being uh, holistic, meaning that we try to model the kind of society that we wish to see in the world through our work in every part of the process, in the content of the questions of the pieces that we make, in the... Um, material way that we approach a production and also in the kind of in the way that we work with each other as a community in the way that we communicate in the way that we um, yeah engage with each other's people um, so that's why we say it's kind of a holistic process um, yeah that's 
pretty much the scope of it. Great. Yeah. And we were talking earlier before we were on mic yeah. um, about both of our missions as as artists and as companies um, to make the issues of climate change this kind of tangible thing through mm -hmm. art making. I mm -hmm. um, wonder if you either feel like as Lanny or as a representative of Superhero Clubhouse, mm -hmm. um, the art is able to or should do that um, in the face of this like epic <laughs> battle we now have um, to make climate change the pressing issue that it is again in this new administration? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, for I think for a long time, I've been really, really drawn to the idea of um, kind of addressing at or interrogating environmental issues through the, form, the medium of theater specifically because of, of what you kind of just described, which is this sense that um, environmental or climate change is happening on, on such a scale and such a huge scale and that these, the narratives of environmental problems are so, are so grand and so vast that it's hard for individual people or even individual generations to have a grasp on those issues and those ideas and to have a grasp on kind of the global scale of it as well. Um, so I'm drawn to looking at those questions through theater because I think that it's, as a medium, it's actually perfect for um, creating space for people to, to kind of dig into what those issues and questions are and find solutions and model solutions in a really active way um, because it requires such deep engagement, not only from the artists who are making it, but also from people who are there as, as audience and witness, and um, the form of theater itself is so spacious in the sense that there, it invites a lot of different art forms, it invites a lot of different fields of thought, it invites, um, it's very malleable in terms of like how, how it is exhibited, right? It could be this, a staged play, it can be this, you know, year-long immersive experience, if you, if you will, and like it, and I just feel like that there's so, it, yeah, I go back to the word spacious because I feel like it's, um, I feel like it's very spacious and I feel like, I feel like it's, it's really, really, really important to that artists specifically, and I would even go so far as to say theater artists specifically are, are looking at climate change issues because they're, um, for the reasons I said, and also because they're so um, kind of like all-encompassing that they're, I mean, I'm sure as you know through your work and your research that you can, you start with one thing and then you realize it's connected to another thing and you realize it's connected to another thing and you realize that it's always simultaneously really personal and really global mm. and who better to, to tell that story, right? Is that what you mean by spaciousness, that it kind of occupies all of these different categories at once? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I, yeah I think that when I, when I say that I, I... I meant kind of that I feel like theater is a really spacious art form and that it... Can you say... I'm just interested in that. Like, can you say yeah. more about what that means? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, just that as, as an art form, I feel like um, I've seen so many different kinds and iterations of work that I that could be classified as theater, 
um, and that the oh, and that the experience uh, it's about creating a world and creating experience for people. Um, I think, and I think that that could mean so many different things, right? That could be um, a conversation between the two of us right now. That I could have curated this as a theatrical experience for you. I could have also curated a theatrical experience that is like something that is quietly humming in the background of your life for two years or something like that. I just mean spacious in the sense that it it kind of invites you to be really playful and and with time and scale and mm. scope and mm. also that it, it invites other art, artistic mediums, visual um, music into it and it, it there's a lot of room. Yeah. It's it's sort of curious because I think about when I think about um, climate issues. Yeah. That the kind of language that dominates it is about reduction of space, reduction of resources, reduction of the carbon footprint, right? But yet theater is this inherently spacious thing, as you're saying, that occupies and that occupies lots of people's time and money and resources, and it's kind of wasteful because, you know, we we put up a play and then we tear it down and put up another one and put up another one. Especially in New York City, it's a sort of constant ebb and flow of. Um, the changing tides of, of theater spaces. So I wonder how we're able to kind of to square square that circle. Mm-hmm. You mean like the like you mean to say that it kind of sounds luxurious to be like, uh-huh. oh, this is so. I, I'm working in such a spacious art form uh-huh. when it feels like we're losing so many things. Uh huh. That kind of is that kind maybe. of maybe question. But I mean, maybe just. Uh, I was just sort of struck by the idea yeah. of what you're, you're offering in terms of space yeah. versus the language of climate change was mm. about reduction of carbon footprint, mm-hmm. right? So like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, right, right. The rhetoric, does that make sense? the rhetoric around it of <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we must cut back, we must scale down, we must yeah. kind of return. I don't know. But yet, as yeah. artists, we're like building, we're building anew always. Mm. Um, is that fair? That we just keep building and building new things? Yeah. Well, I think it, for me, that, that's an interesting question. And I think for me, that becomes then about like, how are we, how are we building new things? What are we, what are we doing? Are we participating in the same, um, the same economy with the same value system that is so destructive mm-hmm. to the world and, and kind of bringing about climate change? Or are we, creating a new and building in a way that is reflective of how we, you know, kind of envision the world to be. You know, what is our, it definitely begs questions of like process and, and also like, you know, materials and like you bring up the, the idea of waste mm-hmm. in theatrical productions. And I feel like we could totally make theater without waste. There must, there must be a way to do it if we all decided we wanted to do that. <laughs> right. I mean, we're all poor. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it totally makes sense <laughs> right. to not have to constantly be consuming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, I always kind of say like I think I feel like storytelling is is evolution. It's how we decide who we are and who we mm-hmm. want to be, and you know, it's how we pave. It's how we both simultaneously understand the world and make the world around us. And it's so important to have stories that actually um, 
meet us where we are and also help us get to where we need to go. So I really love that, you know, it's like the whole, a story is a myth and having that mythology behind us is really important as a society. And so I love that notion that you bring up of, of making new stories and new, um, what we at Superhero Club House like to say sometimes it's like new myths. Oh, right, yeah. Um, I remember that part of your... Um, yeah, new myths for a changing... Or so, uh, no, that's not right. It's <laughs> oh, the the planet place. Oh, right. So we're making this the the series of plays, and together they they're a new mythology for the uh, for the world in the context of climate change. Mm -hmm. And just I really kind of like that really resonates with me. The idea of the role of the artist as being being the story, being the storyteller, the myth maker, the kind of like person who's envisioning the the fabric of society, you know? Yeah. I, I also feel like there's a certain element of the work that we do that's got to be symbolic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was just using plastic earlier, but, like, here we are sitting in front of us, this reusable bottle. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is it really changing the planet? No. Probably not, no. <laughs> what would change the planet it's, is if, like... Walmart as a company decided, you know what, we're not going to use any more paper cups in the break room or whatever. Yeah. But like, so I wonder, I mean, I, want, I wonder what element of our art is a symbol for mm -hmm. the world that we want to shape. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not even a question, just kind of an idea of how symbols shape the narrative we want to create. Um, this is something that I love to hear from other artists, yeah. especially other theater artists, um, who don't get to reach the kind of audiences that um, a television show maybe right. reaches. I do you feel like where where do you how do you feel or I guess like do you feel like your work is still important? If you don't have the um, privilege of reaching hundreds of thousands of people every day mm -hmm. with your work, it, because you yeah. you brought, it made me think of it because you were talking about this one cup right. versus Walmart, you know, like yeah. how do you feel about your work in that in terms of that question? I think it's such a great idea and. In and a great point to sort of speak about artistic privilege in general. Yeah, right. Um, you know, there's a lot of shit happening right now because at the time that we're recording this, we just dropped some bombs on Syria. Like, that feels urgent and that feels pressing, and yet right. here we are, like, pontificating about art, <laughs> right? Like, how in Midtown in New York City, yeah. right? Like, we're not bothered. Yeah. <laughs> so, like... It is this symbolic thing. It is a privileged thing that we have the ability to do this. Um, and I struggle with it. I really do, mm -hmm. in a very genuine, white, guilty kind of way. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the liberal elite who makes $20,000 a year. <laughs> it's oxymoron there. But <laughs> like, am I allowed to make art? <laughs> Should I be making art? Um, 
Should I be making art that only 10 people see? I actually don't think I have an answer for it. Yeah. I have more questions about it than answers. You know, at least it's there. <laughs> at least it's not not there, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know if that's double negatives appropriate, but at least it's, at least it exists. Um, and there's the, the, the sort of like 21st century myth of maybe it will be found and maybe it will flourish and, you know, become this, this thing that we didn't intend on it being. I guess from, to put a kind of ecological spin on it, it everything we do kind of functions as an ecosystem. You know, we talk a lot about the Bengal tigers, but we don't talk about the many unnamed frogs also mm. in the rainforest that are kind of holding up that system and being a really essential part of it that we don't want to lose. Mm. So... Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I also have a lot of questions about whether or not the the issue of not having a lot of attention um, means that my work is not important, or if it mean, or if I can somehow say that it is, in spite of that, you know. So it yeah, it brings up a lot of questions. I don't. I also don't have answers, or I have. I guess rather I have a lot of answers that frequently sound like bullshit to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. I think that's kind of the. I think that we kind of <laughs> want to cut through the bullshit of this. I yeah. think that that is the point. Let's just ask the question. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck are we doing? <laughs> right. You know. Next up, we talk with the super busy arts organizers of the People's Climate March. They were in three states. And three different time zones. Hello? Hello, is this Rachel? Uh, yes, who is this? Hi, Rachel, it's Keith Medellis from the Elemental Podcast. Oh, hi. Hi. We were going we to chat today, and I've, I've just managed to secure your phone number from David. Totally. Did we, were we able to reach Daisha, who I know was in that or no? Oh, Daisha. Um, I don't have her phone number. If you do, I'm happy okay. to bring her Sometimes the phone quality isn't great, but we love chatting, so we've done our best to bring you their words here. I'm on the road, like in the middle of Alabama. So oh, dear. Hopefully I maintain cell connection, but I know... Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, why don't we try? Yeah. They are David Solnit the North American arts organizer for 350.org, and author Rebecca Solnit's brother, for those of you who are nerdy like me, and Rachel Scragus, whose work Confront the Climate, a flowchart of the People's Climate March that we'll discuss in the interview, and lastly, Jaisha Dutta, artivist and cultural organizer working in the Gulf Coast. David joins us partway through the interview. I'm, I'm actually here with um, my co-host of the day, Lanny Fu. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Um, so, so thanks for joining us. Uh, we just have a few, we, we have a few thoughts on questions, and we're sort of hoping that this will be a little bit more of a, of a dialogue. Uh, I realize, Jaisha, that you're driving through Alabama, but hopefully we can have uh, something, of a, something of a dialogue. And I, I wanted to start with a kind of tricky question, which is, in late March, climate change is literally removed from all legislation by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Are are we doomed? Mm. 
Uh, Rachel, you won't want, I mean, sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, so are we doomed in this world? Yes. Right. Like on not just climate, but on many fronts, we're erasing the truth and experience of people on all different kinds of fronts, um, suffering injustices and the, 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 the administration is denying more than just climate science in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we were to assess whether humanity is doomed, probably the, uh, the answer is yes. Um, and also, for as long as we're here, humans will be resilient. Humans will uh, have joy. <laughs> humans will take care of each other. Humans will survive. Um, and so, no, because we all know that climate change is real. Um, and we all know that we're building the best society that we can to our power to uh, to fight back against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there's my answer. Jaisa, <laughs> mm-hmm. do you have thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I think, um, you know, I live in New Orleans. I live in southeast Louisiana where we are experiencing coastal land loss at a rate that is higher than basically anywhere in the, on the planet other than like my ancestral homelands in Bangladesh. And so if I was to just take, you know, humanity is doomed and look at what's happening in my home place and my ancestors place. Yeah. But I can't believe that because I am a strong proponent that there are other ways, there are alternatives, there are other um, ways we can fight back against kind of the colonial, capitalist, kind of oppressive, extractive, and exploitative systems that have been created, that have created not only climate change, but all the other uh, conditions of extraction and oppression that we're facing. And so this moment in time, I think, is the catalyzing moment for people to come together and say, like, this is, like, enough is enough. I think what this administration is doing at this time is actually in the end going to um, be the thing that, that I, I hope finally galvanizes folks to be like, this, this is this moment. If we're going to save ourselves, we have to do this now. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm hoping at actually that this accelerates the pace of change that we need to save ourselves. And they're just in a way helping us out. That, that's how I'm choosing. To they're helping us out. Yeah, by, I mean, by forcing us to, to like, face our problems at this point, right? Face mm. the fact that we have siloed ourselves into these issues through the nonprofit um, kind of machine that has created all these different, you know, campaigns and systems. And at this point, we see, like, you know, Rachel's saying, you know, climate denying is one aspect of what this administration is doing. They're also attacking our communities and attacking our planet on all fronts. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, this moment is a time for us to, like, get out of those traditional ways of kind of seeing our work and seeing our work as one big fight together. Mm-hmm. And I think in that way, that's what I think we've needed all along. And in that way, for the work that I do in intersectional movement building, this moment is actually, you know, they're they're pushing us to do what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, instead of being hopeless, instead of being you know, giving up or saying, you know, this is, we're doomed. I'm saying this is our moment to come together and rise. Can I, can I pause you for one second? I'm sorry. David is also on the line. Um, Okay, great. Hi, David. um, He's coming right here. Hello, David. 
Hey, how are you? I apologize. No, no, no. People kept calling that weren't you. No, no, no. I'm going to merge you with our call right here. Hang on one second. Um, Hello? I think David is here now. Yes. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Can you... Hi, David. Is that Rachel? Yes. Yes. Great. I'm about 90% here. <laughs> Great. Well, How about you two? We're, we're really glad to have you, and thanks for joining the conversation. We were actually just talking about Jayesha's work um, as, I think that you self-describe yourself as an artivist. Is that right, Jayesha? Uh, artivist, scholar, healer, and training, yeah. Cool, cool. Um, I want to take our first question back to you, David, um, and that, that is um, climate change has been removed from all legislation in early March by this administration. Um, just the very word of it has been removed. Um, and the broad question of is, uh, are we doomed? Uh, I mean, I grew up uh, in the, under the Reagan administration when we thought we were doomed to nuclear war. So, you know, I think we're always both doomed, but there's also, we all always have choices we can make to change, to shift things. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those of us who try and organize social movements try and counter either the idea that we're doomed or that we're stuck with the status quo with the idea that people have power and if we organize, we can change things and we can do things for our communities in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's my, my basic operating mm -hmm. thought. I, I think what's emerged from the early part of our conversation is the notion of hope that you know if we if we use the language of doom as artists, um, how can we craft uh, the better version? <laughs> how can we craft this better world? Um, how can we make what we want to see, right? Um, but I, I wonder, you know art really is kind of a privileged place to be uh, as art makers. Um, are, is, is this the most urgent use of our time, making art? And how does the art have to address this urgency? Hmm. I talked for his last time, but <laughs> I'm sure all of us have lots to say about the idea of our being privileged. Either of you want to start, or I could. Yep. I mean, I, I can quickly just say that I think that the notion that art is a privilege is a privilege notion, right? Mm. Like many, many, many artists and people who find a way to, to hone their craft to do their work do so because they have no other choice. Because oftentimes, like, you have to create, you have to express, you have to, you know, fight to show your vision in the spite of all these injustices that we're facing. And many artists do their work for free. Many artists do their work you know, in collaboration with community, the kind of art that I think we're trying to foster is because we, we have to, we don't have a choice because we are in community. We are fighting alongside our brothers and sisters and it is not about being in a museum. It is not about being in a gallery. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, just breaking down the idea that art and artists are only for, you know, uh, the elite is something that I like pretty vehemently mm -hmm. with so that, that's not the kind of art that I think, I, you know, we as movement artists are trying to uh, put out there. It's more the idea that we are all artists and oftentimes our oppressive colonial capitalist 
system takes that out of us as we become, you know, as, as we get colonized and capitalized. We are taught that art is, you know, all these, these false notions about art. So that, mm-hmm. that's my, my so, so maybe a better question is, is art privilege than my original question from, from David or Rachel? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with what Joyce said, that the idea of art being a privilege is a privilege. And the first uh, question you asked us, I think all of us answered in various ways, uh, what we need to do now is express the essential possibility of transforming the world we live in in a way that engages people's hearts and minds. Like, when people are ready to push back against this doomsday crisis, we have the opportunity to come together and build something different. Um, and the work that all of us do, if you take the word art out of it, it's expressing to people what it is we're here to do, making it clear to each other, making it clear to the media, making it clear to our, our targets, our enemies. Um, and I would say that that is not a privilege. It's a necessity. It's an essential act that people are taking right now whether they're artist-identified people or not. Um, that's a phrase I use sometimes. And those of us that um, have the skills of how to make that visible through painting, through sewing, through song, through forms that have been used for all of the history of civilization, we're servants of that really essential action of people expressing themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do, how do we make that? How do we make that successful work about climate change? Climate change is this giant, massive, overwhelming thing. How do we make the ideas tangible? Um, David, I think that you stress quite a bit the, the simplicity, the repetition of design, the boldness of color. And Rachel, your work, con- the, the confronting the climate, the, the flowchart of, of the climate march, is um, decidedly complex. Um, so what's, you know, where, where do we have to make that ratio happen? Is it, does it have to be simple? Does it have to be complex? Um, how, do we, how do we address these large ideas? The reason I use art as a tool for social change uh, is because I think it's the most effective uh, means to tell stories in that uh, the way I look at the world. The, the conflicts between social movements trying to make positive change and uh, corporations and governments who fight to keep things the way they are or make them worse is a, it's a battle between stories. So if you're fighting a battle of stories, what are your what are your strongest weapons to tell stories? So that's that's why I first as an organizer. Uh, started to look towards artists and musicians and performers because I, I realized that they could tell the most powerful stories, you know, which is an, a story is not that it's not based on facts or data, but it's a way of understanding the world that includes that stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, we need all kinds of different artists. So we need lots of different people to tell stories in different ways, you know, in their own voice. I don't think there's a, and there's the folks we're fighting against, you know, like Exxon, who managed to tell the story that climate change is uh, in doubt or doesn't exist. 
they they hire fancy public relations firms to try and tell a story to keep things the way they are or keep their profits intact. So I always think about how do we help fight the battle of the stories without becoming, you know, cynical, manipulative public relations firms. So I actually think <laughs> not that there's a formula that our stories come from our heart and our gut and our lived experience. And that there's all these amazing uh, mediums through which to tell them. Um, Rachel, a thoughts on on the kind of complexity of your of your designs? Is it is it appropriately complex <laughs> to deal with these really complex no, well, issues? What it makes me think of is something I say when I'm talking about the role of art is that we think of art as frosting on a cake. It's the thing that makes it look beautiful, but it's actually more like flour. It's at, like it's actually the thing that holds things together. It's a glue, and so glue holds lots of different kinds of things together. Um, and so you need, art needs to do many different kinds of things. And what's funny about your example is that uh, a really prominent feature of that flowchart of mine is a, a, a collage of David's very simple yellow and black banners. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, there are moments where we need to tell very clear, simple pieces of a story in the street. And then the work that I do as a studio artist, a lot of this is about making connections. And uh, my experience has been that in this kind of meme culture that we're in, um, there's an assumption that people want a very simple story um, and that Carnegie kind of is incredibly complex. And mm. uh, if you take the approach of letting in the complexity, it allows people to feel like they can explore and get committed in a more full way to the complexity of the issue instead of pretending it's simple. But that's only one thing that needs to happen. My image is for classrooms, it's for training sessions, it's for community centers, it's for homes where you look at it in your living room day after day and read details. Definitely not for taking out to the street when we're protesting in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, so it's part of a toolkit of us. Uh, this is Lanny here. David, hi. We, I didn't get a chance to introduce myself earlier because um, we were still wrangling all the different calls, but hi, I'm uh, Keith's co-host. Uh, I just wanted to... I kind of wanted to bring up something that I, I read in a previous interview of yours, and this is absolutely open for you, uh, Rachel and Jaisha, to respond to as well. Um, I think in a previous interview and in talking about activist movements, you were expressing admiration for the Zapatista movement, um, particularly kind of bringing up the notion of them saying, we want a world where many worlds fit. And I was kind of thinking about that in the context of what I feel about our country and what I think a lot of people feel about our country, which is that we live in kind of a fractured, segregated society. And I wondered if you could all respond to the question, you know, where is the unity in that fragmentation? Um, how do we find a world where all the worlds fit? What a good question thinking about a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Take your time. <sighs> One thing is, uh, I mean, my formative experience with using art for social change came from what we call the global justice or anti-capitalist movement in the U.S. And we uh, followed the lead of the Zapatistas, you know, in the face of corporate globalization and Unbridled capitalism were the ones who drew the line and said no more on January 1st, 1994. 
And when they did that, the way they resisted, they told the story on in a bunch of different ways. Partly how they how they resisted, partly the actions they took, partly that they didn't issue traditional leftist manifestos, but told stories and used uh, a sense of poetry. So that inspired a lot of movements around the world, out of which kind of a a global network of uh, groups grew and. In North America, a lot of this, uh, many movements came together in places like uh, the Seattle uh, during the WTO in 1999 or the IMF of World Bank in 2000 in D.C. and were inspired by those folks. And my experience in Seattle, taking our inspiration from the Zapatistas and their sense of poetry and, and performance was that uh, we put art and culture at the center of our organizing and were able to actually inspire ourselves, tell our story, and uh, also through Maastricht Action shut down what, what had hoped to be the most powerful institution in the world, which was an extension of what the Zapatistas were resisting in NAFTA. So, uh, you know, and I think uh, those movements where we were all fighting a common uh, global institution was the unifying glue of uh, a lot of diverse movements. That was the sort of world in which many worlds fit. And for me right now, climate change is that unifying framework and that it impacts everyone everywhere. It's rooted in a lot of the same institutions and systems. And so all we have to do is, you know, organize everyone to change everything. All we have to do. <laughs> so simple. <laughs> Yet yeah, so beautiful, right? Rachel or Jaisa, do you have thoughts? I do. If Teresa doesn't have any, I can go next on this one. Teresa, do you have? Um, I mean, I have, and I think I resonate with what David's saying. I think also as, uh, you know, a woman of color whose people come from generations of colonial exploitation, you know, we as folks of color who have been experiencing a lot of intersecting issues of injustice, we've had to go through the world for a long time with thinking about, you know, in terms of your first question, that is going to ultimately topple the institutions of power, that is going to topple the institutions of capitalism and colonialism that David's referencing, that's been, you know, an ongoing people's movement for, for decades, if not generations upon generations. So I think this is just, it, I, I do believe it's not, you know, right now, 2017, April, you know, 2017, it's been in process. But I think, again, this idea of we're accelerating at that time, that moment, that momentum is increasing. And so on both sides, so on our side, it's increasing as well. And it's, you know, all these different resistance movements that we're seeing happen simultaneously all over the world from Arab Spring to what's happening in the U.S. right now to what happens in Paris is a global phenomena, and I believe it's a phenomena that is deeply linked to you know the overturning of, of generations of, of uh, exploitation. And I do believe you know art and culture and the, the resistance of the people through culture that the Zapatistas does so beautifully show is what's happening right now. And I, I think um, yeah, and again the idea that they've been bringing this like frame of climate justice. I do think brings it all together uh, pretty powerfully as well. Rachel, do you have, did you want to offer your thoughts? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think um, all of us are telling our own um, experiences of some of the same truths, but when I think about a world when where many worlds fit, like two two of my own lived experiences come to mind. First is thinking of, like, I um, my onboarding to being an activist and being an arts activist was through Occupy Wall Street, which it was a big coming together from many places, like the um, moments David was talking about. Under the, the heading, we are the 99%, it's, like, huge coming together um, uh, of, like, defining a really big identity uh, a little bit monolithically. Um, but the moment for me when I really came to understand the power of what I was able to do as an artist to help transform the world is when I was mentoring with um, an, uh, a Yiddishist, Jewish, uh, diasporic artist named Jenny Romain, who after Occupy kind of took me under her wing and said, you need to understand your own history and your own roots and the um, the history of this kind of work of, of using art and culture that is in you. Um, and it made me have a different experience of um, like the, the world that I am in and the way that I see the world and that being one particular lived experience being raised as a, you know, fourth generation Eastern European Jew in New York city. Um, and so when I think about a world where many worlds fit, I think about a place where everyone has the experience of being rooted in their own culture of being able to express themselves authentically and being able to, like, from that place, speak with other peoples about their cultures um, and, like, have an experience of family and belonging. Um, and for all peoples that live in this country or live in the world to feel that sense of safety and belonging. Um, and so when <laughs> the, the big leap uh, in my mind is how do we make a world where many different truths are, are possible is by dismantling the system that makes us all seem like we're the same by doing away with white supremacy that makes us forget that all of us have histories that we come from and different lived experiences that come from someplace um, by pushing some of us to assimilate into whiteness. Um, and uh, there's my short answer. <laughs> Last question. So what art can we expect to see at the march on April 29th in D.C.? Um, I can pick it up from there, a, a level more logistic, and then maybe David even has more detail than me. Um, so we've been working with communities around the country, um, Tricia and I kind of remotely supporting people, and David actually traveling and working with different communities on the ground to develop what it is their stories of solutions and visions and resistance are that they're bringing to people's fire march. And what we've been saying is that people are forming these circles of resistance. So communities are um, having story sharing, planning sessions, figuring out what it is the messages they want to tell is before they make it into art, and then making the physical version of it that makes their story super clear. Um, and that takes lots of different forms. David was helping make a puppet show that I'm sure he'll tell you more about in North Carolina. Um, we know that people are making big props uh, in Baltimore right now, um, and groups that people are making silk screens here in D.C. But a lot of communities are making these physical circles out of parachutes that represent the coming together, the circling up around the vision in their town. Um, and we have an, an open call out for communities to make a circle of resistance um, and paint a circular parachute banner. Um, that you can apply to 
um, by starting at arts.peoplesclimate.org. Um, and then also you can plug into art builds happening all over the place um, at a map uh, with events that's on the People's Climate website. Um, maybe, David, you have some stories of art that's already happened or things that are about to happen. Uh, I mean, the two things that pop into my head that I've been away from home. Uh, I was in New York City and uh, at the last People's Climate March, uh, there's a group called Uproads from Sunset Park in Brooklyn, and uh, they wanted to make some art and visuals with their community, and they had heard the stories of uh, groups where I live in Richmond, California, where we have the Chevron Oil Refinery and other groups in Detroit, Michigan, the, uh, the Zero Waste Detroit group, using the sunflower also for resisting a, a, a climate polluting toxic waste incinerator. And both those groups chose the sunflower partly because they're beautiful and imply solar, but also because uh, sunflowers have this amazing thing where you can plant them and they take some of the heavy metals and toxins out of the soil mm. and also a source of food and so, uh, so Uprose chose the sunflower as their symbol for the People's Climate March, and their youth was invited to lead it, holding the sunflowers that they made. So I was just there last month working with them, and this year uh, they're escalating their sunflowers and using uh, paper parasols and hand-painting. We uh, hand-painted, I think, 60 paper parasols with giant sunflowers on them. Uh, in addition to bringing the art that they had from the last People's Climate March. So, uh, you know, and the, the story of the sunflower, I think, is, is, is spreading uh, like seeds across the land. The other other place I was just at was in North Carolina, and there I got to be part of this amazing coming together of a, a puppet theater company that's very rooted in local communities near the the Triangle, the Basin, Saxophone. Uh, North Carolina. They're called Paper Hand Puppet Intervention. They've been making puppet shows and giant theater performances every summer. They have an annual summer show in Chapel Hill and around the Triangle. And then the other group is the North Carolina Climate Justice Summit, and they're kind of a network of a lot of the climate justice fights around North Carolina, the biggest one being against the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which is nicknamed the Dakota Axis of the Southeast but also some of the uh, the factory farms and other projects that are impacting the communities there. So I got to be part of them coming together, and uh, the folks in the North Carolina Climate Justice Summit, they know what their story is, and they just completed a 200-mile walk to tell the story to local communities. But they they were cross they're cross fertilizing, and there's a giant patch we created out of that cross fertilization of how do you how do we use the tools of puppets made of cardboard, flags, fabric, theater, and some music to tell the story of the people who are fighting the pipeline day in and day out in their communities. So, so that's one thing that's coming together is there's a, a giant theatrical pageant with over 150 pieces of art and puppets, probably one to 200 performers that will be performing in a. As, as North Carolina's contribution to the art at the People's Climate March. That sounds great. <laughs> I'm really yeah, looking wonderful. forward to seeing it. 
Well, have a great evening. Uh, I guess for some of you, afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your storytelling work. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Elemental is produced and co-hosted by Keith Palmadellis with special guest co-host Lanny Fu. The sound editing is by Abin Manis and music is by Benjamin Wiener. Special thanks to David, Rachel, and Jaisha, and everyone at 350.org for organizing this episode. We wrap our first season in two weeks when Sophia returns. We'll talk about the march, and we have a few other surprises in store. Let's make some art. I don't know. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, you I'm can. just kind of following your lead because I don't really know what's going on. So I'm just... <laughs> It's okay. Okay. We, um, Evan will figure out what it is later. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, honestly, a lot um, of it comes from, comes from, uh, we don't necessarily know what it is. Okay. And we just try to, so we're just we talking. just try to talk. <laughs>